La femme d'Angelus did not speak French and they know nothing. Womanhood is not a monolith. There are as many ways to be a woman as there are stars in the sky. Trying to pass out a boundary definition for womanhood is like trying to cup the ocean in your hands. Gender isn't real. We are two small bozos from a small island at the bottom of the planet and you should never take our advice because it will honestly include a lot more murder than is legally encouraged. Welcome to Les Femmes Dangerous, a podcast about <laughs> dangerous ladies by two harmless ones. My name is Bonnie Mary Liston. And I'm Emma Skalitsky. And I'm Isabel Howard. Ah, a, a ghost! ghost! <laughs> a ghost in the recording studio. Who is this? Who is this? Isabel Howard, Hello. how did you get into this recording? I came through the walls. Whoa. <laughs> no. This is a good point to say that I'm the Asian representative of Lesbians. <laughs> She's our Asian Asian history correspondent. Yes, from the field, talking in from Asia, <laughs> from all of Asia, because it is a monolith. Unlike womanhood, Asia is a monolith. <laughs> so even though I was born and raised in Australia and I'm half Filipino, I therefore am the correspondent on. Japan. That's true. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, that might seem a bit wild for us, but Izzy actually studied Japanese at, at school. Yeah, so studied it all through school and then, you know, studied at a university and also lived in Japan mm. for six months. But something else that's also worth mentioning is that my mother, despite being Filipino, she lived in Japan for 10 years. So I did actually travel to Japan before that and meet a lot of Japanese people and stuff. Yeah. So mm. even though... That's not the same as obviously being Japanese and living there. Not. Um, and Emma also studied Japanese at university and uh, lived there for a little while. Yeah. So I have been to Japan and I also studied it in primary school, but I am now the dumbest person on this podcast. I was going to say that's a refreshing change for me, but that implies that I'm not always the dumbest person on the podcast and that's a bit overly confident for my taste. I think we're probably equal equal first for the dumbest person on the podcast. We're usually tied, but today yeah. I am Wario on the podcast. You're Wario. Wario. You guys are Mario and Luigi and I am but a shadow creature. I'd like to be Waluigi. Okay, you're Waluigi and Wario and I'm the, the coward man Luigi. And I'm Brian David Gilbert saying something along the lines of either Sonic is a god or he could kill God. Okay, well, this metaphor makes perfect sense and there's no need to fine tune it any further. (laughs) Anyway, so we thought this would be a lovely episode to have a guest, as you've obviously noticed. And our powers combined, we have uh, an interest in talking about the sun or yure. The three big ghost women. The three big ghost women? They're big. They're very large ghosts. Of, of Japan. So in Japan, there are ghosts. There are <laughs> ghosts probably everywhere, depending on whether or not you believe in ghosts. But in Japan, there are ghosts and ghost stories. And they have these three ladies who are like very tall. Though they are not the same height. There are three different heights for three different women. Yeah, some of them have legs and some do not. Legs are also a thing. We're talking about the three main ladies, but we haven't even told you who these three main ladies are. No. They are. Oiwa. Oiwa. 
Otsuyu. Otsuyu and Okiku. Mm-hmm. And they're just some swell dames who've never done anything wrong. No. They each sort of have a story. A tale to tell. And they're all very tragic. And they're classified together in a category as the sun or yure because they are perhaps, as, as we said earlier, the three biggest ghosts. So they're the most famous, arguably, stories. And when we talk about afterlives on this podcast, it's interesting to talk about afterlives as not only a theoretical thing that people stick around, but also they're literally ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) In my very literal sense. An afterlife afterlife of the afterlife. I feel like this is a nice segue into just an FYI. Whilst the three of us have an interest in the sun or yure and Japanese language and culture. And it's worth knowing that, like we said in past episodes, these folk stories, the sun or yure, oiwa, okiku and otsuyu, Mm -hmm. multiple authors have multiple retellings. And so they're kind of rich with various sentiments operating at the same time. They are folk tales and therefore have no definitive version. The sexiest thing to be. Exactly. And, uh, you know, whilst the argument can be made that today folklore is a really, really great vehicle for representing underrepresented voices, you know, the voices of the queer, the oppressed, but folklore can also be used to harm, to control, to assert dominant powers. Depends on who is telling them. Um, And no story has a, a fully stable reading, kind of regardless of the original author's intention, because they're mirrors of us, the readers and the retellers. All this to say... The three of us are non-Japanese interpreters of these stories. Mm. So the stories don't necessarily belong to us, but that's okay. It's just worth knowing that we might accidentally misconvey or dilute ideas through lack of cultural understanding. And so as we're talking, um, we absolutely recommend kind of going back and engaging with some of the sources we recommend or mention and also seeking out people with a cultural background. And we'd also really like to thank uh, Yoji Hashimoto-sensei, Katsuhigo Suganuma-sensei, and Masaya Dote-painter-sensei for consulting with us on resources and cultural insight. And we'd like to thank Izzy Howard for being with us today, who has uh, a lot of insight herself and also... And is also my friend. (laughs) Again, yes, worth mentioning that, again, I'm also not Japanese. Uh, I don't have that kind of same cultural insight, so I am on the same boat in terms... Of you guys? Yeah, you're our friend and we're happy that you're here. And and I think she's a real smart gal with some great ideas. She's a real clever clog. So uh, we are talking about ghosts, yes. but mm-hmm. Japanese ghosts. Mm. Yure and then yet more specifically, onryo. Izzy, would you like to tell us a little bit about what yure and onryo are? Yes. Uh, so yure... We can effectively call them restless spirits. They don't necessarily have to be angry spirits. Yure is kind of more of an umbrella term, but onryo specifically are those spirits that were wronged in some way or have some sort of connection. Vengeance. Vengeance. Or have some sort of Mm. deep unhappiness in life and they stay. They don't move on and they wreak havoc and seek revenge in our world. Mm. I was wondering about this earlier, what ghosts are necessarily. And I feel like the way I wrap my head around it is they're almost like manifested will, if that makes Mm. sense. It's like the intention of the person who's died is still there. And in this particular case, their intention is 
vengeance and a grudge cultural oh, reference grudge. um this the grudge <laughs> this is something that does come up quite a bit in japanese ghost stories is that the ghosts are not the same mm. as they were in life that they they kind of center around that will they are but warped mm. images of the man they once were mm-hmm. or in this case Indeed. woman because we don't give a fuck about any men ghosts yes <laughs> not in this episode no so another interesting thing about on real is that they have quite an interesting codified appearance mm. In the same way that you might say a stereotypical Western ghost is like a bedsheet man, but I feel like ghosts are always the exception to the bedsheet rule. You rarely actually see a ghost depicted as a bedsheet, you know? Mm-hmm. In like Western codified appearance, you have either the bedsheet man, but you also have like the spooky sort of spectral figure, mm. things like that. Yeah, and I think it's also, it's like, if you think about like Crimson Peak, for example, a ghost is either the exact replication of the body as it died or it's just literally the person in their favourite clothes but transparent. That's true. I would say the big thing for a Western ghost is that they're like a white transparent, like mm. <laughs> classic Western, a white transparent, <laughs> but they're like a, a white outline or like sometimes a greenish. Um, the codified image of Yure and also of Onryo tends to be that they have unbound long black hair white burial robes, sometimes with that sort of white uh, triangle covering on their forehead, although not always, Mm. Um, Mm. dangling arms and no legs, and sometimes accompanied by little sort of will-o'-wisps sort of floating around them, known as hitodama. Mm. And like Western ghosts, they're quite pale, usually in the face. Yes, kind of bluish-looking. Bluish undertone. With very mm. black eyes mm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get a little bit more into the history of why they look like that later. But um, something that I, I, I'm i not sure I have a full understanding of this, but maybe for explaining what the URA are, it's worth talking about the idea of the soul quickly, mm. the Raycon. What is a soul, Emma? What is Do a soul? How soul? much does a soul weigh, Bonnie? Izzy, does anyone know? Where where does the soul come from? Where is the spark of life that distinguishes an animate being from an inanimate one? All of these things are very arguable. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to yure, you know, we were talking about manifested will earlier. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm going to caveat this. I am not an expert in Shintoism or Buddhism, but the general gist of it is that the reikon of a person is sort of analogous to their soul, right? And if you're at peace, you can pass on. Become one with the universe. Become one with the universe, one with the ancestors, whatever you believe. But if there's anything holding you back, if you die at sea or in childbirth or you die young or you have a grudge or in your last moments you think about that time Tom Finlayson said your legs were really hairy in middle school. Or and you were murdered by Tom Finlayson. <laughs> if you haven't lost your virginity and you're like, damn, I wish I'd boned. <laughs> <laughs> then then that that kind of messes with your your soul your your recon and it means that it's disturbed and it can't move on so you become a yure so the dead are able to kind of manifest their souls in haunting and we are going to explain the concept of sort of spirits in shintoism and traditional japanese theology but before that it might be worth uh, explaining the image of the yure that we mentioned before 
Exactly. So this image is very consistent in the depiction of ghosts. Um, and it may be familiar to you, even if you're not particularly familiar with Japanese culture, because the kind of iconic spooky Japanese ghost from like the ring or the scary movie part X parodying the ring, which you will all have seen is the little girl in the white dress with the long black hair. Who's like crawling out of shit. Um, and that's because yeah. it's a direct cultural descendant of the Yure. But, you know, descendants have to have ascendants. And the first kind of depiction of the Yure in this form began in 1750, which seems quite late. There was this mm-hmm. famous artist called Maruyuma Okyo, and he was really famous for painting with detailed realism. Like, he used models for everything, which was a bit saucy at the time. But the one time that he drew something that he didn't see with his little eyes is when his girlfriend died, and then she appeared to him in a dream as a ghost. Oh, her name was mm. Toyuki. I don't know why all the names in this episode start with O. It's just fun. Oh, it tends to... I think a lot of them are attached as an honorific. It's a... Oh. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was an answer to this yeah. question. Like San Oyure. Now, Oyuki was a geisha at the Tomenaga Geisha House in Otsu. She was the mistress or lover of Maruyama Okyo. And uh, as Bonnie said, he was really famous for painting realism. Um so much so that this painting kind of stuck out to people because they were like, he wouldn't paint something that's not there. So what he painted must have been a ghost. Mm. Exactly. And it's become like the most famous image of a yure. It's the first depiction of a yure and still probably the most famous. Zach Davison, who wrote a book called Yure, which we like looked at quite a bit for this, speculated on if Oyuki was a Yure, what her motivation would be, which, um, I mean, we'll never know because was she real? Was she a dream? Doesn't matter. But what's interesting is that having such a like prolific painter as a lover, she has become immortalized. And consequently, she's not only the first, but also the direct ancestor of how we visualize Yure today. Oh, yeah. So he saw his girlfriend and she, her hair was out of its, you know, sexy bun. and It was supposedly, you know, floating in the air. Floating in the air because she's a ghost. She had no feet. She had mm. no feet. Um, but she was still looking pretty hot in the face. So he's like, babe. And she was like, remember me. Mm. And then he painted her. Mm-hmm. That's where the origin of the image that we know of. of Yuzu, Yeah. So it starts from. there from a specific painting. Yeah. And I think it was also really good timing for Maruyama Okyo because it was right in the middle of a time called the Edo period, which Izzy will shortly explain. But because he was a prolific artist right in the middle of this time, it was just a perfect coincidence that the culture hooked onto that image and ran with it. Now, speaking of the Edo period... Izzy, would you like to get into a little bit of a primer on not only that time period, but Shinto and Buddhism? The Edo period. And also, yeah. I also uh, explain a little bit about Shintoism and Buddhism. Again, I'm not an expert on either mm. of these, but I did do a bit of reading just to help ground us a little bit as to mm. the image of uh, spirits mm. and religion in Japan and how that might have influenced all of this. Mm-hmm. Do you have any questions, Bonnie? <laughs> what is an Edo period? An Edo period. Well, first of all, Edo is actually the original name of Tokyo. <gasps> the Edo period marks when the capital mm. of Japan was moved to Tokyo from Kyoto. Uh, and it's 
known as the years from 1603 to 1868, which coincides with a whole lot of other historical stuff in the world, which, you know, we won't get into, but it's quite interesting mm. to consider that. Mm. Um, yeah, parallels. Yes. Would you say that the Edo period is a fun, funky time? I would say that definitely. So the Edo period really sort of exemplifies a lot of the stuff that we sort of imagine when we think of traditional Japan. So the kabuki and like no theatres where they've got the funky masks and they do the dancing in all the fancy kimonos and have the a lot of the makeup. Um, the tea ceremonies and there was it was also a huge period of literature and the main reason that all of this kind of came out in this mm. period is because in the 300 years before there had just been constant warfare throughout Japan um, and it ended mm. in 1603 when the Tokugawa clan sort of took the shogunate and the shogunate it was the topmost military position in Japan and Tokugawa Iyasu finally managed to stamp out any opposing forces and good for him good for him yeah like mm. i mean you know there are some we could get into that but we won't and then and you know convinced the emperor to let him become the shogun and then ended up holding mm. more power effectively than the emperor at this point the emperor was a little bit more of a figurehead mm. but that's sort of why at this period there was space for all of these things all of these art forms to come out because people weren't busy worrying about mm. getting their head chopped off by the neighboring mm. clans you know? and not being so depressed all the time mm. they were like maybe i would like to hear spooky stories as a fun thing instead of just the news yeah it's also worth mentioning at this point what the differences between shintoism buddhism and confucianism were because they were all very strong during mm. this period shintoism is kind of the grassroots religion of japan though uh it's kind of almost a bit i feel like a bit pagan in the way that it has no sacred text or founder, and it kind of just developed different deities in different areas. It's kind of when you have that image of Japan, you go into a like go climb a mountain. There's a random little shrine like that is sort of a really strong exemplification yeah. of what Shintoism is. It's it's a very very natural religion. So they kind of associated um, rocks and trees, rain, <laughs> river, winds as having spirits, and then the idea was that by associating these things as having spirits, that you would sort of treat them with respect you would appease them and then they would protect you in return and um i mean there's a whole bunch of words for the word spirit like tamashi reikon tama kami um mm. to define all of these things um so we're just going to call them spirits yeah that's easy also like mm. some subtle religious differences so we won't get mm. too much into mm. that but another thing worth knowing about shintoism is that the main source of bad things and bad juju was uh was bad spirits and they were what caused especially mm. because you think of japan it's like natural disaster city bad it, times bad times so apparently historically is shintoism kind of attributed a lot of natural disasters to these spirits not having been appeased correctly like you know they bad spirits effectively mm. Mm. it's also worth mentioning that shintoism was very very ritualistic um, and mm. that it was very popular amongst peasantry so it was kind of the religion of the masses. Of the people. Of the people. Mm. Whereas, mm. ooh, segue, <gasps> Buddhism, which kind of came into Japan in the 6th century from via Korea, um, it became really popular really fast and is still actually the dominant religion in Japan. But because it was very complex and it required a lot of meditation, it was kind of restricted to the upper classes. Who had time to yeah. sit around and be like... Who could read. Mm, <laughs> and then there was, there was mm. also Confucianism, which wasn't as much of a big thing. Like, it was a favourite of the shogunate in the Edo period that we're talking about. But the thing is, all of these religions also shared a lot of ideals in terms of, like, purity, humanity, 
um, humans being inherently good and then also having like humans having spirits. Mm. So they all got mm. on together pretty well. They did. There was like, there apparently there was a little bit of conflict, but like then they kind of realized actually we can get along pretty well. And mm. that's, that's and you could kind bad. of combine them. You could be a, sh- a Shinto Buddhist. Yes. And that's actually something that is very interesting because even though, like I said, Buddhism is the most popular uh, religion in Japan. Um, Shinto is what has affected the culture so strongly. Mm, just like mm. the rituals that make their way into everyday life and mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily associate them with being religious. Like taking your shoes mm. off in the house, mm-hmm. that emerged as a Shinto practice. It did. And so the, it's kind of like people started to pick and choose the things that they liked, you know? like mm. As um, you should be able to. Yes. Religion should be a buffet. So it's interesting that a lot of people would identify as Buddhist, but then they'd still, you know, follow Shinto practices. Um, I was wondering, Izzy, mm-hmm. when we're talking about Buddhism and Shintoism and how they kind of mesh together, what are some of the, like, ideologies that particularly are connected to Yure, if that makes sense? Yes. Well, one thing that was actually really big was funerals and, like, I mean, death in general. Mm. The original Shinto sort of image of death kind of comes from the first book. I, I think it's the first book ever written in Japan, um, the mm. original Japanese history. But they kind of described those mm. myths of Japan being created and like you know the birth of all of the gods. And one of the mm. things that they Izanami described, Izanagi. yeah, one of the things that they described was this underworld, Yomi mm. no Kuni, the land of the underworld. But at least in terms of ritual of like funerals and things, people tended to sort of veer more towards Buddhist funerals because. It was easier because mm. in a Shinto funeral practice, you have to go through 20 set steps that take several days to carry out and it has to be carried out by a very mm. specific person. And the, and the other thing is that if you're at all associated with the funeral, you also have to undergo like purification rituals because... Of, That's like, too know, the, complex. It is yeah. so much effort. So people were kind of like, oh... I like what this Buddhist guy has yeah, to say. Yeah, so they kind of had like a much more simple... Mm. And is it, like, fair to say that purification's quite, I don't know, like, quite important? Yes, it's a big, a very mm. big thing, very big thing in both of them. Um, well, all mm. of them, really, Confucianism as well. Especially in terms of, you know, that purification mm. and, like, um, appeasing process was really important because in both Buddhist and Shinto funerals, the whole point of that was to cleanse yourself and to cleanse everyone who was close to the person of any sort of lingering resentment but also to help part the spirit to pass on onto the other world mm. Mm. and it was a kind of a thing that death the death was the bad juju mm. that it wasn't just getting rid of the resentment that the spirit might have but the very concept of death was clinging to them and you had to be like yeah it's almost the idea that death is contagious in a way which when you think about like the fact that people died of disease it makes sense that that would come up as a logical leap yes Oh, and one of those funeral practices was that the body was wrapped in a pure white kimono. Mm. Also the covering going the opposite way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really interesting to me. They they button up the kimono, as I like button to say. <laughs> um, and is like, there are no buttons in a kimono, you gaijin. Uh, they buttoned it the opposite mm. way to what you do when you're wearing a kimono as a, a live person. Mm-hmm. And what interests me about that is they don't remember why. Yeah. They're like, there was probably a reason for this, but now everyone just does it because that's what you do. The same thing applies to that, that triangle forehead covering that I mentioned before. They don't really know where that came from either, like at least historically. It's just a thing that's a bit associated with ghosts. I love a mystery. Yeah, interesting. How spooky. Well, that's, well, that's a thing that's not really known. 
like where did it where did it come from where did it go and it's also this is also the reason yure have long unbound hairs because when bodies were buried their hair was let down mm-hmm. um which we'll get into a little bit more later but i guess i it's worth knowing i guess some of these beliefs that underpin these stories because as we get into them keep the, keep this information in mind mm-hmm. that this is a, a specific cultural context a cultural time with specific beliefs and that like from the beginning right through to now has affected the way that yure have been shaped. Yeah, so I think we're going to mention this a lot. Uh, so just to add a defining term, a kaiden is a Japanese term for a ghost story mm. or a folk story, a specific kind of scary story. It comes from two kanji kai, meaning strange, mysterious, rare or bewitching apparition, and dan, which is talk or recited narrative. So these are old tales, kind of spooky tales, not necessarily ghost tales. Think like Bloody Mary or like hook hand car doorman. Mm. Um, that's, yeah, in folk tale. Yeah. I mean, we think the same in English, don't we, when we say folk tale. It's something that's been yeah. told for a long time. Mm. Shall we get into the the ladies themselves? Yes. So, let's crack in. Emma, tell us the tale. Emma, tell us a tale. Emma! I'm going to tell you guys the story of Oiwa from the tale Yotsuya Kaida. Um, worth bearing in mind as well for all three of these stories. They're ghost stories and there's content that includes abuse, um, murder, obviously. Uh, there's a lot of gore and there's also like implications of like sexual assault and rape. Um, because these are tales largely about abused women, it's just worth bearing in mind, you know, just so people listening do what's best for them. That's what's safest for them. All right. I really committed to the Oiwa story. I'm a bit embarrassed now because I think no, the I future Don't tellings. Don't be embarrassed. Sorry that we're lazy. <laughs> Forgiven. All right, let's crack in. Okay. So, mukashi, mukashi. A long, long time ago, a woman named Oiwa was married to a samurai named Yemon. Yemon was not a good samurai. He was thieving, cruel, and wasteful. When Oiwa had tried to leave him, he had killed her father and framed it as the work of a cruel stranger. Oiwa had nowhere to go. In time, Oiwa bore a child. After the birth, however, she fell ill. Times were hard, and between the little money and the new mouth to feed, Yemen grew resentful and bitter. He hated that Oiwa depended on him in her illness, and he hated that she dedicated herself to their baby more than him. Living in the house next to Oiwa and Yemen were the wealthy Ito family. The head of the household, Ito Kihei, was a highly respected doctor, and his granddaughter Ome was deeply attracted to Yemen. A devoted old man, Kihei decided to help Ome. On the pretense of curing the sickly Oiwa, Kihei prescribed her a medicine while Yemen was out for the day. Truthfully, this medicine was a poison. And as Oiwa took it, the left-hand side of her face blackened and burned, melting away. Although Oiwa knew something was wrong, she was too poor to own a mirror and too sick to investigate. Returning home that evening, Yemen greeted his wife. But when he saw her face, his resentment turned to loathing, and he fled to the Ito household. There, he was wet by Kite and Ome, who proposed the answer to all his problems. Divorce your wife and marry into our family. The Ators were rich and Yemen would have a beautiful young bride. He would never want for anything again. It was decided. 
In order to lay out true grounds for divorce, Iyamun ordered a servant to rape Oiwa and accuse her of infidelity. On a prearranged night, when Iyamun and Ome were out celebrating their future wedding, the servant entered the house. Oiwa, ever polite, a good wife, rose to greet him. But upon glimpsing her face, the servant was overcome with horror and told Oiwa everything. He retrieved a mirror and bid her look. Oiwa stared, unbelieving. She touched her skin and watched it slough off in her hand. She ran her fingers through her hair and pulled out large, bloody clumps. In a fit of terror and rage, she picked up Yemen's sword and ran upon it, piercing her throat. The servant fled. Oiwa lay in her own blood, choking and cursing Yemen with her dying breath. The next morning, another young servant by the name of Kohei discovered Oiwa's body. He grew suspicious when his master seemed overjoyed at the news of his wife's death. But little more can be said of Kohei, as Yemen had him killed. No one could know of Oiwa's miserable end. Yemen had the bodies of Kohei and Oiwa nailed to either side of a door and thrown into the river. They were sordid lovers, he said, and justly put to death for their affair. All seemed well for Yemen, who swiftly married Ome and turned the village from thoughts of death to celebration. But Oiwa's deep suffering and grief were not to be forgotten. On their wedding night, Yemen woke and found himself staring into the mutilated face of Oiwa smiling back at him. In terror, he reached for his sword, the very one she had died upon, and slashed blindly. No sooner had the visage of Oiwa appeared when it vanished, and Yemen saw that it was not Oiwa he had attacked, but his new bride. Ome was dead, hacked to pieces. Yemen ran through the Ito household, but wherever he went, he saw the faces of Oiwa and Kohei smiling out at him from the darkness. He hacked and slashed at them wherever they appeared, blind with terror. In a single night, the entire Ito household was massacred, one by one. Kihei, that devoted old grandfather, was the last to die. Realising what he had done, Yemen fled. As he ran into the night, he glimpsed Oiwa everywhere. In the shadow of the moon, in the flicker of the lanterns, he saw her. A body bloated with water. That matted hair covered in blood, the crusted burning skin, that weepy yellowed eyeball. Her mouth blackened and bloody, opened in a moan of terror and rage, calling out, Yemon Sama, Yemon Sama, Doste, Doste. Yemon ran and ran until his feet were raw, until he was emaciated and mad, until he could no longer tell the difference between reality and nightmares. But he could never escape Oiwa. Wow. What, what a, a tale. Story. What a tale. <laughs> my, my blood chilled. My bones tingled. If I could just inquire, uh, what does Iyamonsama, uh, Iyamonsaya, doishte, doishte mean? Of course. Uh, it basically means, um, my lord Yemen, my lord Yemen, how come? How come? Why, baby? Why? <laughs> Why? Why? Now you've told us the story very well. Would you like to tell yeah, us about the story of the story? So this was the tale of Oiwa from Yotsuya Kaiden. Yotsuya Kaiden was originally written in 1825 as a kabuki play, which is a type of traditional Japanese theatre. 
uh, and the playwright was a guy called Tsuruya Nanboku IV. Mm-hmm. Having said that, Yotsuya Kaiden isn't just like an original work by Nanboku. It's allegedly based off a real Oiwa who died in the 17th century. The alleged history that Namboku used for his play comes from a place called Yotsuya, which I think translates to the Four Valleys in the Edo period, where there's this legend of a woman named Oiwa from the house of Tamiya, and it's said that she almost destroyed the family fortune. The historical record comes from a, a text called Idle Talk of Yotsuya, which was written in 1727. It's written pretty much 100 years after the alleged events of the destruction of the Tamiya household. The Yemen in like, the history was a man who was adopted into the Tamiya household as they had no heir and constantly bullied and abused Oiwa because he was apparently very unhappy with the match and she ended up fleeing into the night one evening and was never seen again. But basically the rumour was that Yemen had had a mistress all along and he murdered Oiwa to clear a path for the mistress into power. But... After Oiwa vanished, the fortunes of the Tamiya household, and this is in quotes from Yotsuya, rapidly declined. They ended up turning the decaying mansion into a shrine for Oiwa in hopes that perhaps her resentment might, I guess, be assuaged. Lovely. I have two things to say. One is that the idle talk of Yotsuya does sound like it's an 18th century gossip girl. Just from the name. Yeah, I know, right? I'm, I'm given to understand, Emma, this is my Milton Pratt yes. fascination. Oh, I'm given to understand that Oiwa is actually quite curse-happy throughout history. Yes, yeah, so there is still kind of a curse to do with Oiwa. The first time the tale was translated into English in 1916, the author James S. de Beneville actually, in his introduction, like apologised to Oiwa for retelling the story. And when people put on the kabuki play, actors go and pay tribute at her grave and her grave is at Myogo Temple in Yotsuya and the date on the grave is Feb 22nd 1636 so they go there and they pay tribute and the gist of it is if you don't a lot of disaster will befall the production so even as late as 1976 there was a performance of Yotsuya Kaiden where people died oh no it's kind of comparative to Macbeth I guess yeah I see Mm, that the cursed play um, there's also this legend that if you retell the story or if you actually go to her grave to ogle and don't pay proper homage to Oiwa, um, the curse will befall you as well. And mm. apparently the curse, if you ogle her grave or if you retell her story and don't pay homage, is that your face swells up and your eyelids droop. So Emma is now cursed. Oh, no. I suppose the podcast is cursed now. Although having said that, you guys went and you paid homage before we, we recorded, right? Yes, we did. We gave Oiwa and Okiku half a passion fruit each. That's really nice. And we said, please don't curse us. I think you were right to kill all of those men. <laughs> um, and you seem really rad. Do you want to get pancakes later? They haven't responded, but... I think the important thing is that when you make the offering is that you just, just acknowledge it. Yeah. Think, and that's fine. Yeah, that's it. It's like ruminating on it for a moment is how I feel. Mm. Hmm. Now... Nan Boku didn't just use the idle talk of Yotsuwa as like a historical thing. Mm-hmm. He also included other historical events that he'd heard of in the narrative. So yes. there's a story of two servants murdering their master and also a, a samurai who apparently murdered his faithless mistress. So these are taboo. Uh, just the idea that people in different classes would attack across boundaries is apparently really shocking. Because class was a really big thing then, wasn't it? In Edo, Japan. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Bonnie, you've got some notes later on about how, uh, like, even down to your hairstyle, you were really rigidly boxed into different classes and roles, Yeah, they had, like, government-assigned hairstyles for different class levels and jobs, and to wear your hair in a different style, Mm. like, to maybe suggest you were higher class than you were, was a serious crime, which kind of fascinates me because hair crime seems like a really easy and seductive crime to do imagine being in jail it's like what are you in here for oh i put my hair in a ponytail yeah (laughs) like i just was feeling myself i was feeling myself too well and they took me to the pokey and like you were saying, Izzy, like this kind of class thing plays into the relationships in the in the mm. actual play as well. So there are socioeconomic tensions uh, between Ome and Oiwa. Oiwa is from, I think, a disgraced or out of luck samurai family. So she and Iemen are quite poor, whereas Ome and Kihei are from a very well-off family. So that kind of puts Ome and Oiwa not just in tension for their romantic interest in Yemen, which I don't necessarily think Oiwa even has. Youth and beauty. Mm. Yeah, and then also their class. And when you were talking about Buddhism and Confucianism earlier, like both of these religions create a lot of discourse on the kind of transformative qualities of women's jealousy. So when you have alleged jealousy and tension between class and youth and romantic rivalry, you can imagine how much this messes with the natural state of things. Mm. Nanboku himself, the guy that wrote Yotsuya Kaiden as a play, he actually is considered the originator of the ghost story as a genre in Kabuki. Mm-hmm. Mm. And he's actually pretty famous himself because his ghost stories in Kabuki, uh, rather than being just fantastical and supernatural, also make a lot of commentary on the social reality of Edo Japan. So he is really interested in depicting not just, you know, the fantastical, but also like human greed, desire for wealth, fame, advancement. Which is probably why he took from those real stories. Exactly what you said. He takes from reality because reality is the greatest horror story of all. Ooh. Ooh. The curse is life. Life is a curse and existence is a prison. <laughs> yeah. It's a quote by Akiyama. Oiwa is so honest good-natured and credulous that she cannot retaliate against Iamon and other assailants during her lifetime. It is natural that she dies bearing them a grudge. In this sense, a grudge is considered as a passive feeling. Oiwa's grudge is a passive hatred because she cannot deal with her hatred herself while she is living. Being a part of the inner consciousness, this does not lead to direct violence. Her feeling of hatred remains repressed. The feeling of hatred accumulates, however, and once its self-control is broken, at the last moment it is inseparately connected with the vengeful consciousness and an offensive power is developed. Its power may be doubled by gaining momentum. The relationship between Yemon, the assailant, and Oiwa, the victim, is finally reversed. I think that's really interesting in terms of what we see in a lot of these Onryo stories is the reverse of power is only acceptable once you are dead. Like we were saying about class consciousness, if a servants kill their master, if a a woman kills her husband in real life it's mm. horrific but when they have been murdered everyone recognizes their mistreatment is so unjust that they deserve to get to kill samurai in death in death is the only time it's acceptable so it, you almost want to say this is like quite a freeing tale but it, ultimately at the heart of it this is like a woman who couldn't get out of her position until she was dead which i, I just think is really sad And it was partly the fact that she was such a good wife and didn't retaliate against him that made it so just for her to come back. Mm. 
if she'd spoken up and been like, stop doing this to me, Eamon. Yeah. Get a fucking job. <laughs> then it would have been like, oh. Maybe he deserved to yeah, be killed. It's, it's very much. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Much to Yeah, wonder. totally. And the Kabuki play actually is very sympathetic to Oiwa as well. There's this whole like second plot with Oiwa's sister and her husband and the guy that's pursuing her and Oiwa's brother-in-law ends up finding Yemen like at the top of a mountain and kills him and as he kills Yemen he says Oiwa will enter Nirvana and then it starts snowing so I guess the suggestion is that she finds peace when her family and people in her life help her resolve her what's mm-hmm. been wronged against her it's a happy ending I guess mm, don't murder don't murder because they will remember. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to mention about Oiwa before we move on to Okiku? Just something real brief. Mm. Oiwa's like probably the most visually famous because of the like actual melting face. Yeah, melting face, the eye and everything, which basically means there was this whole like cottage industry that struck up around her when the kabuki came out. So if you're like, who the hell is Oiwa? What does she look like? There's this really cool ukiyo-e, which is a specific style of Japanese art called Oiwa Emerging from the Lantern. Yeah, floating paintings. The image is called Oiwa Emerging from the Lantern by Utagawa Kuniyoshi, and it's very spooky. It's kind of her as a lantern is how I would describe it. It's like she's burning through the lantern. Yeah. It's very body horror. As well as that today, apparently, if you bring up Oiwa with like kids in Japan, they pull down their left eye. Mm. That's all I've got to say on Oiwa. Well, that was a lot. It was very informative and we had fun. Yay. Great job. Now it's your turn. It's my turn. Tell us a tale. Tell us a tale. Weave us a tale. So the story of Okiku is called Bancho Sarayashiki, um, which is the mansion of plates or the plate mansion. Again, several ways you can translate that. Plate palace. Plate palace. Oh, that's nice. I like that one. Um, But basically, there once was a beautiful maidservant known as Okiku. She worked in a castle with a samurai named Aoyama Tessan. He often made advances upon her, asking her to be his lover and mistress, but she always refused. One day an idea came upon Aoyama that would convince Okiku, and this is Bonnie's little insert, to fuck. (laughs) The family owned a collection of ten valuable plates, and he stole one before telling Okiku to count them. She counted up to nine again and again, and unable to find the tenth plate, started to panic, knowing full well that should she be blamed for its loss, she would be killed for the crime. In tears, she went to Aoyama to ask him for help, where he offered to prevent her punishment and overlook the crime so long as she became his lover. But despite her panic and fear, she still refused him. Enraged at being rejected yet again, Aoyama threw her down a well where she fell to her death. Many days later, late at night, Aoyama noticed a voice calling from near the same well he threw Okiku down. It was counting. Ichimai? Nimai? Sanmai? which translated means one plate, two plates, three plates. And at nine, the voice stopped before letting out a horrible shriek that rang through the air. The ghost of Okiku and Onryo had returned unable to rest to haunt Aoyama for his terrible deed. And from here, there are multiple split-offs of the story. One says that the wailing of Okiku every night from the well eventually drove Aoyama mad, 
Another says that an exorcist was called to the site where after Okika called out nine, he yelled ten, and the wailing stopped, suggesting that having the tenth plate brought Okiku peace. Mm. Some stories say that this set her spirit to rest permanently, but others say that it only prevented her wrath from continuing on those present. Yet another story says that the exorcist saved Aoyama from her revenge, but that means that he went unpunished, so we're not really fans no, of that. No, no way. Yeah. And then there's other versions that suggest that Okiku was the servant of Aoyama directly, and that Aoyama, who also goes by other names in these kinds of versions, suspended her above the well and beat her with a wooden sword Jesus. for fun before dropping her to her death, yeah, which is should, gross. He should, he should be murdered by a ghost. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But then there's one more recent version from 1916 that actually changed the story, and they think that this is sort of because of uh, more Western influences of, like, love stories and things, which said that Okiku and Aoyama had a love affair, but then she was worried that he would choose someone from a higher station because in this story she's still a maidservant and he's a samurai. Mm. She tried to test his love by breaking one of the plates and sort of telling him, oh, I accidentally broke it, and seeing if he'd still try and kill her. I don't know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But then when he didn't, she was like, oh, actually, I just broke that to see if he'd kill me. And then he was like, how dare you, and killed her anyway. So that's, that's a, I think he failed the test. Oh, I think so. <laughs> it just feels like that version is, like, trying to make Okiku more to blame, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, well, the end of the story then goes on with Aoyama sort of sees her ghost counting, again, like in the other stories, but unlike the other stories, apparently she looks very beautiful and calm. And he sort of is suddenly struck with regret and is like, oh, God, what have I done? But then he kills himself. This is hence the romantic Mm. side of it. He kills himself so that they can live together in the afterlife. Um, But anyway, some points to Yeah, tell us about Okiku. Look at. There are some sort of ideas that Okiku, she's only after her 10th plate, which is especially kind of reinforced by the whole, like, if you yell 10, she's gone forever or she's gone for Mm. the time being. Mm. But at the same time... In a lot of stories, it seems like her ghost affects more than just... Like, obviously, in the way that everyone can hear it going past the well, it's not just him who can hear it in these yeah. stories. She's not really discriminating in yeah. who she's going Her revenge going after. is not very focused. It's not. She's just angry, which is fair enough. Yeah. So her big thing is wells, right? Yes. Because, like, the story of Okiku, like, I mean, there are traces of it being told as early as 1504 and 1520. And, like, of this particular story, there are 48 versions. Like, written down. Sort of, yeah, written down. But then I feel like in this story in particular, wells are a thing that come up so often in Japanese folk and horror stories. I feel like they probably go back even further. Well, it's like, don't fall in a well to children. They're like, whatever. So part of the poisonous pedagogy is convincing children not to go near things that are dangerous for better reasons than I said so. So you find a lot of different folklores that uh, monsters that live in wells or near water to try and scare children from drowning to death. Yeah. And I guess like if you drink from the well and an animal's fallen in there and died and everyone gets sick, you're going to be like, water's cursed. Yeah. yeah, wells are dangerous. Good thing we moved on to plumbing. <laughs> you can still put bodies down there. Yeah, though. like 99 Hill Street. <laughs> yeah. Reference. Um, <laughs> Haunted plumbing. Another another horror story. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So the first adaptation of the story outside of just being a folk tale was actually as a bunraku play, which is a traditional puppet Ooh. sort of play in Japan. And that had the same name as well. But yeah, and then it was actually adapted... Mm. Again, by Baba Bunko, who was a, he was a, apparently a like essayist, a storyteller, like mm. an orator, just told a lot of stories, said a lot of things. He had a cool name. He did have a cool name, and that was in the 18th century. Mm. 
those two versions of it kind of became what was adapted for other mediums later on mm. so it also became a kabuki wasn't as successful as a kabuki but then it was also like a rakugo which is a storytelling mm. theater again another traditional mm. theater of japan and then i heard that because um wells are dangerous and the story is really old and popular uh lots of places in japan were telling it about their own wells and yes. they all kind of think that they invented okiku yeah and like i mean they probably all did i reckon this is just me personally they probably all did have their own version mm. of Okiku, but we have a little list here of places. I mean, the most famous one is Himeji Palace, um, but there was also Harima Province, Bancho, Myoki City, which claims to have a grave as well. But actually, Emma found out something interesting, which is that the legend is actually older than Himeji Palace, which was built in 1600, mm. although it is feasible that it could have taken place at Himeyama Castle. Yeah, same site. So I think someone captured Himayama Castle or they were given it and they turned it into Himeji Palace. So they have mm. a well there that's called Akiku's Well and you can go yes, see it. Do people throw coins in it and make wishes? I don't think so. <laughs> that would be kind of wild, I guess. But it's kind of like have some spending yeah. money. Well, it makes yeah. sense that it would be the most famous spot because the idea of like going somewhere and taking a snap in front of the location is like very exciting. Mm. But the, mm. the well was only built pretty in the scheme of things recently like much later than the story so it couldn't possibly be her well which it's a so they, they built the well like this is obviously yeah. where like, she this, died this well's pretty spooky so it was only from the 1741 adaptation which was the um, oh, so they, heard, play. they saw the puppets and they're like i bet that happened here yeah it was kind of in her time and place she really only kills the samurai um but okiku she pops up everywhere so you hear a lot of stories just like you're yeah. walking past any well and your friends are like, bro, one time I heard a voice going like one, one two, three. <laughs> and then it got to nine and I freaked out and I said ten, ten. And then it was all peace. There are a lot of Japanese ghosts that have like a call and response thing. They are. Like that one that you has the mask and instead of saying she's pretty or not, uh, you have to be like, so, so. I'm very busy. I don't yeah. have time for chat. I don't have time to tell you if you're pretty or not. Or the one not. who's like, do you need your legs? And you have to say, I'm... Uh, Yes. I'm using them right I'm now. I'm using them right now. Hey, I have another well question. Oh, yes. Sorry to like... No, no, we're getting off track. Like the teke teke, <laughs> I'm cutting the conversation. Tell me about other well facts. There is also apparently... This is the okiku insect thing, which I think is quite Ooh. interesting because they appear in wells. So there was an insect that started to sort of infest wells um, in Japan oh. in the late 1700s which they called the okikumushi, which is okiku insect. Um, and apparently they kind of just popped up everywhere and they kind of look like a bound woman. Um, oh, my if you God. Look up the, it's called a byasa caterpillar. If you Google it, you can kind of see what they look like. They look pretty gross. And I don't like the idea of opening a well and seeing one of those. No. Yeah, oh, my God. It's interesting that it shows how kind of culturally entrenched the narrative was that people were like, hey, they're in wells like the ghost. They're, they're like the ghost. They kind, of, they kind of look like a tied-up lady. It's as How if they horny threw... do you have to be to look at a caterpillar and be like, that looks like a tied-up lady? <laughs> Just a drunk samurai one day picks up one of those insects and is like, hey, bro, Maybe they didn't. does think this look insect... like a sexy lady to you? <laughs> Maybe they didn't think the insect looked like a sexy lady. Maybe they just thought like, all these bugs in our well is like a curse. <gasps> mm. Yeah, well, apparently it was a specific year. It was 1795. So maybe they were just like, what is happening with all these bugs in our wells? So the similarities between Okiku and Oiwa's stories mm. um, 
are murder. Obviously. Yes. They they both end Terrible up in, men. in watery graves, you know? Um, and often when their ghosts are seen, they're described as having long, wet, flowing hair. Mm. Water is quite a, a ghostly element in Japan. The Obon Festival, kind of the... Festival of the Dead. Yeah, they mm. put little lanterns out on the water, don't they? They do, They and they light lanterns, I'm, I'm pretty sure, around the gravesite so that all of the ghosties can find their way. Oh, a common theme in these tales is the loss of wah. Yeah. What's wah? Wah. Wah is, wah is so much. It's a very kind of nebulous term, but uh, to bastardize it, it's effectively like the idea of a harmony or harmony within the community, as well as just like a harmonious connection between yourself and nature or yourself within a particular position in society. To simplify it, harmony. And I guess the theme in both Okiku and Oiwa is that Iyamun and Aoyama aren't satisfied with their position, so they break wa, they privilege their own individual needs and their selfish mm. desires, and that causes the kind of upheaval that creates the yure. Yeah, it's very unjust. Yeah, and there's a scholar called mm. Colette Balmain who writes quite a lot about kaidan and horror in Japan, and she basically summarises both Okiku and Oiwa as tales where samurai pursue social ascent and women are victims. Mm. That's really interesting and deep. Would you say that... Uh, Wario and Waluigi are thus named <gasps> after the harmony that they bring to the universe. But they're the Being, evil brothers. No, they, they're the shadowy double, you know, yin and yang. It's only with the balance of each other's existence that harmony can come to the Marioverse. Mario cannot exist without Wario. Wow. Luigi <laughs> cannot exist without Waluigi. That's so beautiful. Anyway, you were going to say something actually important. So. Me? Never. Yeah. Um, I suppose there's a little segue, segue dance from the thing about water and wet hair is like hair as a general rule is amongst all three ghosts we're going to discuss pretty important, mm. particularly within the Edo period. Hair was very, very significant. Communicative. It. Yeah, it meant a lot. It held a lot of meaning for, yeah, mm. culturally for a lot of people. So yeah. if having your hair up in a certain way to find your place in society, having your hair down was also a thing. And mostly it's a sign that it's like a very private, personal thing. Yeah, intimate. it's very private and intimate. And there's a, a tradition in kabuki love plays where there's an erotic hair combing and hair styling scene. Apparently in one of the versions of um, Oiwa's play in the kabuki, there's a scene where Oiwa is brushing her hair by herself. And that's kind of because people were so familiar with this idea of the lover brushing someone's hair. It already sort of sets the scene for creepy vibes. Her loneliness, the failing of her marriage. In the first part of the story, she's alone and it's sad. And then it comes back in like an ironic twist. There's Mm. this specific scene when her face is melting and stuff where she starts trying to comb her hair and it comes out in bloody clumps on the floor. Yeah, it's like in horror taking a scene that's traditionally one way and making it another Mm. way as a thing. Exactly. And there's allegedly a saying that's kamiwa ono no inochi which is a woman's hair is her life. And with Oiwa pulling out her hair and it landing in bloody clumps, it's like like she's pulling the life off of her head. And there was this kind of belief that hair was an extension of blood. So when it comes out in bloody clumps, it's like... That makes sense. It's like she's dying. 
Mm. Well, once again, it's kind of the liquidy theme. You did some studies in your honours thesis about hydrofeminism, which is the yeah. idea that women are more closely associated with water and uh, liquid and being fluid creatures. So when the ghosts who are always seen with their hair down and also not just down, but kind of messy and ragged and wild, that's not only a sign that something's wrong because their hair is, they're wearing inside hair outside, but it's also a sign that's wrong because something about a woman that should be controlled and carefully coiffed is now wild and untamed, mm. suggesting that she herself is a wild woman. Apparently they play on this a lot in the kabuki adaptations of these stories, so they mm. really exaggerate the wigs, so they have puppeteers under yeah. the stage. Like, they, like, push hair out through under the floorboard, so they're pulling the clumps out of the wig in a very special way, mm. but also underneath they're just shoving the hair, so on stage the hair mounts into these huge piles, like, more than could come off the human head. Apparently with the Oiwa one they had not only the clumps pushing up, but they also had the hairline of the wig was attached to a wheel off stage, so they'd turn it and it would pull her hairline out. Oh, I like this quote you've put down the bottom. That's very sexy. It's by an academic called Shimazaki, who we'll talk about in more detail later. Shimazaki does a whole article on um, transformative bodies and jealousy in Ida, Japan, specifically to do with women. And this quote is a long line of pre-modern representations of the monstrous feminine that are centred on hair and blood. Hair and blood, baby. Hair is blood, is hair, is women, is madness, is liminality, is blood, is water. Is ghosts. So that's very sexy. Speaking of sexy things, it's time for the it's time for Bonnie's story. tale. All right, I'm going to tell you all today the tale of Otsuyu, and her story is called Botan Doro. So, once upon a time, there was a widowed samurai called Ogiwara Shinojo. And, you know, he's a widow, he's a bit of a zaddy, maybe slightly later in life. He's lonely, he's alone. Oh, um, it's bad. He's sitting on his porch during the festival of Obon, maybe watching people go by, having a nice time reflecting on how his life is sad and empty. Mm. And as he's sitting there being a real sad sack, he sees a beautiful woman and her young maidservant holding like a beautiful peony lantern. Maybe the lantern draws his eye and then he's like, oh, sexy lady. Anyway, he looks at her and he's like, hmm. And then she looks back, catches his eye and is like, hey. And he's like, oh, wow, that was nice. But then the next day, she comes back and they start a bit of a relationship. You know, they fall in love and eventually she's like, can I stay the night? And he's like, ooh. So she comes every night with her maidservant and they make love passionately, vigorously, tenderly, sensually. And the maid's there. She's just sitting in the corner holding the great lantern. They need light to see the, the tender curves of their bodies. Anyway, he's having a great time. Uh, Shinojo has a neighbor and the neighbor's like, man, Shinojo is really having some great sex recently. I'd love to get a get a hand on that ball, by which I mean an eye on that court. Uh, so he decides to do a bit of peeping tomery um, and he kind of, you know, puts his eye up to the crack trying to see some hot samurai on lady action. But instead what he sees is Shinojo just going at it, having sex with a decomposing corpse. And in the corner of the room, there's a skeleton holding a lantern. And he's like, this is not what I was hoping for. My buddy is doing some full-on necrophilia. What I find very interesting about this tale is the complicated kind of character of this neighbor. Because he's a peeping Tom, but he's also a good friend. Because the next day, he's like, 
hey, bro, just spying on you having sex last night. You know how it is. You were having sex with a skeleton, and I just wanted to know that you knew that that was going down. Like, I hope this is a consensual thing. If so, what the hell? Yeah, and if so, I think we need to talk. Uh, maybe you should seek some help. Uh, and his friend's like, no, it's a sexy lady. And he's like, no, bro, it's a skeleton. I think you're fucking a ghost. And he's like, oh, what? So the next night, his girlfriend comes back, as she always does. Oh, her name's Otsuyu. Doi. Otsuyu comes back like, hey, lover, let me in. Let's do this. And he's like, I can't. I'm busy. And she's like, okay. In some stories, yes, they call a Buddhist priest in to be like, my buddy's having sex with a ghost. What's the sitch? And the Buddhist priest says, like, you can't have sex with the ghost anymore. Step one. Uh, she might try and wile you with her womanly way, so I'll put these protective amulets up there so she can't enter the house. Although sometimes she can't enter without his permission. Uh, there are variations on the story. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he keeps being like, I can't. And she's like, okay. And eventually she's like, look, I can take a hint. I can see you're not interested, but if you ever want to find me, my house is that way. And she walks off and he's like, oh, bro, she said she had a house. Ghosts don't have houses. Checkmate. And his friend's like, that is the graveyard. The way she pointed is the graveyard where dead people live. And he's like, good point. Eventually, you know, she stops coming and he's alone again. And, and as he lives alone with just his creepy neighbor for friendship, he's miserable without her. He loves her. She might be a ghost, but she's the love of his damn life. Uh, and eventually he goes to her, he leaves his house and he goes where she told him to go. And the next day he's missing and everyone's like, oh my God, where is our best friend Samurai Shinojo? He's a great guy. And the neighbor's like, hey, not to be suspicious, I think we should check the graveyard. And everyone's like, that doesn't seem very suspicious. Okay, we go to the graveyard and he finds a grave that says, Otsuyu, and it has the peony lantern, except it's not a beautiful lantern. It's old and weathered and falling apart. And he's like, once again, please don't arrest me for murder. I think we should check inside this coffin. So they open the coffin, and inside is Shinojo, wrapped around a decaying skeleton in a lover's embrace. And he is also dead, but he has a peaceful and serene smile on his face like he's very happy. So it's implied that the lovers are together in death. So I think the story slaps. Aww. It's super weird. Sexy and happy. Yeah, it's a nice story, actually. <laughs> She's not a mean ghost at all. She just wants to get some. Uh, so this story differs from the other two in many ways. It's kind of the odd duck out. And that might be because it is not mm. an originally Japanese tale. It's actually a Chinese story that was brought to Japan oh. later. So the Chinese story dates from about the 1360s. And it's from the Jianden Xinhua, written by Chu Yo, uh, which is a collection of erotic tales disguised as Buddhist morality parables. And in that version, like, they have the sex and she's a ghost, but then they are, like, summoned by a priest and flogged for their sins and go to hell. Kind of weird. Don't like that. It was uh, brought over by a man named uh, Roy. Roy. So Asai Roy kind of heard this tale and then rewrote it in his own collection of stories, but he wasn't really interested in all the Buddhist morality. He was just like, what if a guy had sex with a ghost? Wouldn't that be fucking weird? <laughs> it would be. He was really just focused on that part of it, but he really made the right call because he wrote about uh, 69 tales. Nice. <laughs> um, and this is the only one that kind of survived past his lifetime. So he made a real good call on what people like. Um, and during the Edo period, when this all happened, uh, Japan was kind of a closed society and 
Uh, China was uh, viewed as a very mysterious and exotic nation because it was like close to them. They knew a lot of stuff about it, but they couldn't go there. So they had this thing where they, they really prized Chinese stuff, but also it was seen as kind of a faraway land where magic could happen. So in a lot of stories, like if someone has a particular item that has mysterious powers, like it came from China, or in this case, they can be like, and this story happened a long time ago in China. Yeah, it's it's almost like Asai Ryoi was like, I want to get famous and make some money. What's trendy right now? Aha. China goes. Which is very clever <laughs> when you think about it. Davison, who is one of our sources, was saying that sex is the cornerstone of the tale. And from this story, we see that the idea of having sex with a ghost becomes quite a popular theme in, in Japanese literature. So he wrote it in the book, but then in 1884, it was adapted into a rakugo by San Yute Encho, who was a very popular storyteller. And as usually happens in these tales, you know, there was some side characters added, some evil sisters, some maids and stuff. And in this tale, instead of deciding to go mm -hmm. to her, one of his evil servants removes the charms for like money or whatever, and he's drawn out by her ghostly wiles. But I like that version less. I like it better when they're in love. Um, and then it was uh, adapted into a kabuki. And the kabuki really changed it. But it was actually uh, more of the Meiji period than the Edo period. It was a late adaption. And in that version, he's not a, a sexy old widower. He's a young student and he has a different name. He's a young samurai who's poor and he's sometimes an umbrella maker. And she's a rich noble woman who's alive and they're in love, but they can't marry because of this system, you know, how it is. Mm. Uh, but then she dies and he's like, oh, no, we never got to get married and stuff. But then she shows up. He's like, what? I thought you were dead. And she's like, no, my rich aunt told everybody I was dead, but I'm actually alive. Let's have sex. And he's like, cool. Um, but then obviously she's yeah. a, she was lying. She was actually dead the whole time. So that one's kind of got some Romeo and Juliet vibes. And because the borders were open um, during the Meiji period, it's also entirely possible this is a deliberate comparison because you could reach for stories that had become popular in other countries and like draw things out of them. Open the gates. Stop having them be closed. Be closed. Yeah. So her kind of purpose is not revenge so much as it's getting that good nut which I respect. Um, another thing that's different about her compared to the other ghosts is that she has legs. Obviously, she needs them to walk around and to have sex because men are unobservant, but I think he would notice while they were having sex if she didn't have feet. So it's a very popular story. It was actually the first fully-fledged yurei ghost story to be made into a film in Japan in 1910. It's had a very rich career in film, including in porn in the 1970s japan went through a evolution of art called uh the pink film where they enjoyed making what through many academic classifications is described as softcore porn mm -hmm. um and one of the masterpieces of that era is an adaptation of botan doro obviously you can't blame them it's a good it's a good uh yeah source yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story. It is. Um, compelling. <laughs> so I'm here. I'm in it for the plot. This just makes me think the neighbor is like, interesting. <laughs> yeah. opens the door. Yeah. Exactly. Very I'm very academically curious about this. <laughs> I think that part of its appeal has always been that you're like, it's a ghost story. And they're like, a lot of titties in this. And you're like, it's a ghost story. It's like how in the initial parables as well, it was like, there's a lot of titty in this and they're like, it's a moral story. It's a story. moral story. Yeah. 
Sex and death. Hey, that's like it. Sex and death is always like titillating and intertwined. Sex and death is very intertwined. Uh, le petit mot, as the French say. So uh, like Oiwa, there's actually a bit of a superstition that actresses who play the roles of the ghosts in uh, Kaiden Botendoro will come to harm as well. In 1919, there was a performance at the Imperial Theatre where the actresses playing Otsuyu and her maid uh, got sick and died within a week of each other, and that kind of spooked everyone. Now, why do you think that is? Because Otsuyu has no historical basis, right? Oiwa and Okiku have curses, but they're also allegedly real people, so they would haunt you. Why Why would Otsuyu curse yes. you? Uh, there is no historical basis for people having sex with ghosts, but all I think it might just be the idea that if you play a ghost, you may draw the attention of ghosts. That makes sense. So. Yeah, well, that's our stories. We did it. We we told all three of the Sunday yeah. Kaidan. So now that we've told those stories, we might go into a bit of an exploration of their afterlives, their impact on culture over time. Mm. Oh. Ooh, we do like a cultural deep dive. We love a cultural deep dive. Mm. There's this great quote from Zach Davison, uh, because I think in the intro we did kind of describe the era as just being a ghost. But there are some kind of very specific cultural context to the Japanese understanding of ghosts that comes from yurei being a special thing. And he has this great quote that says, Richard Fenniman once observed, you can know the name of a bird in all the languages of the world. And when you're finished, you'll know absolutely nothing whatsoever about the bird. What's true of birds is also true of ghosts. Translating yurei as Japanese ghost tells you nothing. A more direct translation of dim spirit tells you even less. Some words carry specialized meaning wrapped up in history, in folklore, in religion, and one-for-one word translations cannot accurately convey that meaning. There is so much culture bound up in those single words. Mm. I think that's a really great way of explaining it. And he also compares it to the leprechaun, because if you call a leprechaun an Irish fairy, Mm. that doesn't bring with it the same kind of lexicon of meaning that we all understand in leprechaun. There's a great paper that I think we mentioned earlier. It's called Shades of Jealousy, Body of the Female Ghost by Satoko Shimazaki from 2016. And she has a quote that's basically, in the early modern period, those who lingered in the world as indistinct apparitions of their previous selves remained more visibly connected to the human world, even as they evoked the specific symbolic values of the ghost and carried with them their memories of life even after their transformation. All this to say, yurei, more so than maybe our Western understanding of ghosts, really straddle the world of the living and the mm-hmm. dead they're still very much consumed by mortal concerns they're not fringe to it if that makes sense mm-hmm. there's a really good quote by a f- folklorist called tanikawa kenichi and mm. he says that on the backside of the routine treatment of japanese history there exists another extremely unusual current of history that is none other than the history that is presided over by evil spirits of deceased human beings and the history of the legend of these spirits if it is neglected I think this omission hampers the ability of Japanese history to make sense because the presence of these beliefs and understandings motivates Japanese culture and history. You can't really understand people's actions if you don't understand their worldview. Um, So one example of this is that the capital of Japan used to move whenever an emperor died so that the old emperor wouldn't hang around and haunt their descendants, descendants mm. uh, because they're jealous that they are no longer alive. 
Other ways they kind of hang around in contemporary life is that Obon, the Feast of the Dead, happens every year and it's still practiced. Hashimoto Sensei, our man on the ground, he said that it's one of those holidays where it's traditional to at least try and go home to visit your family. So not only is it a celebration of the dead, but it's the idea of your family. And like you said, your ancestors, Mm. everyone gets together. You go back to see your parents, your parents see their dead parents. It's as if it's like a gathering of the family, but living and dead. Yeah, it's sweet. But he also mentioned that apparently part of the reason why, because Obon is um, in August, in August, the the middle of summer, he said that part of the reason why um, when he was young, at least they liked to tell Kaidan was because they kind of gave you a chill and it would be so hot and like sweaty and gross Mm. and helps you cool down, which is interesting as well, because the summertime is the like peak season for Kabuki plays. And like we've mentioned already, quite a few of these Kaidan became kabuki plays so it kind of all just matches up really nicely i think that one of the things that separates kind of the western tradition of ghosts and the idea of yure is that uh, japan is a single nation and it's a nation that has for a significant period of time had a stable cultural identity and uh tradition Mm. while the western idea of ghosts has i mean it's an accumulation of multiple cultures and multiple understandings kind of bouncing around hobnob over time. So I think that the idea of yurei in Japan is quite formalized or maybe codified. They have certain ideas, and it's not to say that it's static because you can introduce new ideas and bounce off old ideas, but there is this set expectations, while in the Western tradition you can kind of call anything a ghost Mm. um, because there are so many ideas going on. Yeah, like if you compare The Shining to Ghostbusters, Mm. you see the whole space between as well, right? Yeah, you're right in that even though Japan did pull from other cultures, even obviously like China and India, they managed to kind of assimilate those things into their own culture. Mm. Yeah, and it's codified within a a specific religiosity and a specific cultural outlook. Mm. So you're right, like they, they pull those into that cultural outlook, whereas when we... Like, Slimer doesn't come from a specific cultural outlook. He is just, like, a product of a number of different things. Do you think Slimer was a person when he was alive? <laughs> what kind of person would he be? Who was Slimer? So that's, I think, also worth mentioning here is that Yurei aren't always necessarily seen seriously in Japan as well because mm. when we spoke to Hashimoto-sensei, he was also saying... Um, that apparently when people, for example, are counting plates, like they do it as a joke just to sort of be like, woo, spooky. Yeah, yeah, it's titillating. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like it's part of the culture and not everything that's part of culture is taken very seriously mm-hmm. all the time. We, mm-hmm. You interact with culture when you're being silly and you're being fun, you're being frisky. Yeah, if we mystify the idea of the yure and say, oh, it's a very specific thing, we also run the risk of... I don't know, almost mystifying Japan, if that makes sense. Orientalization. Yeah, that's another interesting thing. I would say that yurei are still very culturally present in Japan. It's not to say that, like, everyone's super seriously believing in ghosts, but they are part of the culture, traditions, and the imagination. There's this article called Will the Real Ancestor Please Stand Up? Ritual and Social Construction of Ancestors, Kami and Goblins in Japan. It's written by a person called E. Leslie Williams in 2015, and it was a pilot study. They're getting funding to do a larger version of this study based on the results of this 2015 study, and it was ethnographic which basically means you test a portion of the population. 
So they did this mini study with 23 Japanese people between the ages of 20 and 75, asking them to kind of consider their cultural attitude towards kami, ancestors and oni. It was specifically looking for ideas of boundary definitions and categorization as well as like where those things reside within modern attitude. They had a whole lot of like graphs and data. So if you look up the article on Google Scholar, you can have a little geese. But the basic conclusion they found was that even today there is still meaningful cognitive categorization in modern Japan. Ancestors, yude, previously living humans still have a lot of emotional closeness and presence within contemporary community practice, whereas kami and goblins mm. were represented as having less social relevancy and were affiliated more with emotional and spiritual distance. So even the kind of older portions of the population that didn't necessarily see them as pop cultural still kind of were like they're interesting but they're not relevant to me in the same way uh like ancestral Mm. beings are yeah i feel like that can be in part illustrated about how like a lot of japanese people still have shinto shrines in their house that are there to honor their ancestors like they'll often have like either a photo or some sort of offering but they don't have something for example to placate goblins yeah Yeah. At least not typically. If there there are, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And like Hashimoto sensei said, most people these days learn about kami and oni through pop culture. Mm. So their attitude has changed because their place within culture has changed. Well, would you say that learning about them on, you know, television is any different from learning about them at... uh, I'm going to fucking do it. You ready for this? Hyakomonogatari Kaidenkai, which is... Yes, bitch! I mean, that was just the pop culture of the day because television wasn't invented. You had to sit around with your friends telling Kaiden to each other. What is Hyakumonogatari? Oh, Hyakumonogatari is this fun thing they used to do before television was invented where you would uh, sit in a room with a hundred candles and tell a hundred Kaiden and every time you told one you would put out a candle so it got darker and darker and spookier and spookier. Kaiden became particularly popular in society in the Edo period, Mm. partially because a multitude of reasons. One of them was that it was the end of a almost, what, like 200 years of civil Um, war. The Sengoku period was 150 years of warring states. Mm. So part of it was like, life is no longer a nightmare. I think I could enjoy spooks and scares vicariously. Mm. Uh, part of it was also that this mm. piece led to a bit of a cultural renaissance. People were getting really into art and they were also into weird getting stuff. weird. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Previously as well, all their like weird mm. tales had always been parables. So there's this concept called setsua, which is basically Buddhist morality tales. So they finally also had the opportunity to like have these mm. fun, weird stories without the moral. <laughs> this <laughs> is essentially like the Otsu story. What if we took out the whipping yeah. at the end? What if we didn't go to hell? We just forked. Yeah. Even though they didn't have a moral, there is an element of like social criticism, but it had to be a bit subtle in these stories, especially during this period, because like the Edo period's chill, but it's still kind of a highly stratified class system so you couldn't just be like yo fuck samurai but during this period because it was no longer wartime the samurai had kind of less to do and there was a bit of a trend that these men who were trained for war kind of they were obsolete effectively without that they spread violence to anyone and they would start to misbehave and people didn't like that so that's possibly Mm. why the reason why samurais are the villains in a lot of these also I mean, I've mentioned a couple of times the kind of class consciousness Mm. in these tales that it's the servants and the women who are powerless who get power. There's this great kaidan collection, Inu Hariko Inc. The thing I like about this is it's talking about this extravagant military lord 
and it said he was incredibly rich. Yet wealth does not fall out of the sky or grow from the earth. It is extracted from the peasants. And I'm like, yas, king. You know, wealth comes from the exploited classes. Bless. We can also specifically place the moment Kaidan entered the cultural consciousness in the Edo period. And I guess the popularity of the practice. In 1627, Tokugawa Iemitsu, who was the third shogun regent in the dynasty, was very, very sick. And he had a Confucian scholar called Hayashi Razan, who collected strange and mysterious Chinese tales. And he gave them to the shogun to kind of comfort him while he was sick. And it just went off Mm -hmm. like it was a hit. So Razan was commissioned to go out and collect more. So he compiled 32 more popular legends into five volumes for the shogun, and he named these volumes Kaidan, which, Mm. as we've mentioned, is the strange supernatural tales. One of the interesting things about that story with the scholar collecting those, apparently he was also the shogun's doctor, so it was almost as if he was like, this will be your treatment. Mm. In the progression of these stories, they're oral tradition, and then they are literary tradition, and then the next big evolution in most of these stories came when they entered the theatre, either in the kabuki or the rakugo tradition. That's a really nice way of putting it. Thank you. So the interesting thing about kabuki, there are many interesting things. For one thing, it was created by a woman, Okuni. Kabuki was incredibly popular during the Edo period, and it's really interesting that when kabuki started putting on these kaidan, these ghost stories, they had to kind of like draw from the already extant visual culture to describe Mm -hmm. how to show ghosts because in kabuki one of the things is the costuming and the makeup is very stylized so you can clearly tell characters apart because actors often do double roles so they had to decide what a ghost would look like based off things like i'm sure we mentioned earlier in the recording the sexy ghost painting lady oh the ghost of all you keep like that so the standard ghost costume that kind of emerged was very very pale white makeup which is pretty common but then many heroic characters would have red paint to show that their blood was pumping they were healthy they were vital so the opposite thing happened for ghosts they got blue and gray makeup highlighting the areas of their face and this is one of the things that has continued later uh in for example in the grudge which emma and izzy made me watch for this film mm. the little boy when he's in his ghost form is quite blue lipped yeah. and stuff he specifically is using the kabuki makeup which is called Aiguma. So the director took the Aiguma makeup from Kabuki and put it in his film. And also the long, unkept wild hair, as we mentioned, Mm. and a white kimono like what the dead are buried in. Mm. It's very interesting that Kabuki stole iconography from other places and then they became the dominant culture from which iconography came because ghosts after Kabuki all tie back to this in one way or another. Either they emulate it in subtle or obvious ways or they completely go against it for shock value. But either way, you have to think about it. Yeah, that's so interesting. And there were a bunch of Yuki-Oe artists. They would set up around kabuki theatres and they would draw the characters in the kabuki and then sell them out on the street. Yeah, so it's, it's like it, uh, yeah. souvenirs. It's souvenirs. Yeah, souvenirs. Izzy, yes. you've got a little topic here. I do have a little ditty here. We sort of briefly mentioned before how women were supposed to act in the Edo period, sort of part of the reason why yeah. they were able to come back so vengeful and why people were able to sort of look at them as not only rightfully carrying out their actions, but also just kind of how they evolved to do so. We've talked a lot around the kind of cultural world that Okiku and Oiwa and Otsuyu have lived in, but we haven't talked about them as women very much. There was a book that came out in 1729, which is in the latter half of the Edo period, or actually it's pretty much right in the middle, 
kind of exemplifies how women might have been asked to act or might have been expected. And it's pretty gross. I'm going to start out by saying that. Um, so the book was called Onna Daigaku, which is, um, it meant great learning for women. Great learning for, for women. women. It's pretty much your like how to be a good wife and woman generally. Hooray! They don't know the author for sure, but it's attributed to this guy, Kaibara Ekken. And I'm just going to read out a few quotes. A woman has no other lord. She must look to her husband as her lord and must serve him with all worship and reverence, not despising or thinking lightly of him. The way of the woman is to obey her man. Another quote. A woman should look on her husband as if he were heaven itself and never weary of thinking how she may yield to him and thus escape celestial castigation. And then... This actually is quite important as well in regards to the stories. The five worst infirmities that afflict women are indocility, discontent, slander, jealousy, and silliness. <gasps> Not silliness. God forbid. Without any doubt, these five infirmities are found in seven or eight of every ten women, and it is they that cause women to be inferior to men. Oh, Jesus. Mm. Just sort of to save save Japan here, uh, I'd like to say that by the Meiji period, which is the, what directly followed Edo, apparently this text was already being highly criticised okay, as um, misogynistic. Nice. So it was very much an Edo period thing. Something else that's worth mentioning is that divorce and remarriage was totally like acceptable. It was sort of like you know frowned upon mm. back in Edo period, but mm. they even had these things um, called divorce receipts. So it was more common for... A husband to leave their wife because they had a bit more power in the relationship obviously mm. reading that previous mm. passage but apparently sometimes the wife's father could whip up this thing called a divorce receipt it was actually called a mikudari han it was a three lines and a half which you could literally just if you wanted to leave your spouse you could just pass them this note and be like i'm done i'm dissatisfied with this marriage goodbye mm. and one, the main thing apparently in the Edo period at least traditionally is more so that you had a family unit mm. Oiwa is on her way to divorce yeah. Biamon when he kills her father so she has nowhere to go exactly Ugh. and then he kills her anyway what a bitch I know yeah the other thing that's sort of important to consider in at least Oiwa's story is that also that she actually followed all of these things Although I didn't get her nothing in a couple of things that I read in regards to Oiwa's was that she was jealous I think that jealousy is an emotion that's often levied at women and it kind of rubs me the wrong way to suggest that it's a particularly female emotion. Mm. Yeah, I feel like perhaps jealousy when it's applied to women is a cheap way of getting around, like looking deeper at what their negative emotions are. So like Mm. if I'm cheating on my girlfriend and I accuse her of being jealous, she's not jealous. She's upset that I'm cheating on her. Mm. Like that's my way of reducing her emotions to something petty because jealousy is not a very respected emotion. Mm. I think you could very easily, if you were a dickhead, try and like ascribe jealousy to each of these characters. You could say Otsuyu was jealous of the living, so she wanted, you know, jealous of people that had relationships, so she wanted one for herself. Or or Kiki was, I don't know. She was, she was silly for rejecting. She couldn't count. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or she was silly for believing Oyama. She was slanderous. I really don't like slanderous in there as well because I think slanderous is like telling people all the shit that men do. They'll be like, how dare you say that I do what I do? Yeah. <laughs> Abuse thrives in a community of silence. That's something I learned recently. Jealousy as an ideology, I guess, I think we're getting into it now, has quite physical repercussions in stories from Edo Japan. 
we're going to talk about this more, but to kind of start our thought process, there's a really nice quote by a fantastic scholar called Nordico Tiudida, and she specifically specializes in folklore. So she talks not just about Yure, she talks about a whole lot of different folkloric creatures. And this is from a paper called Women Spurned, Revenge of Oni Women, Gender in Space. So you might be thinking, what the hell does this have to do with Yure? The quote is, jealousy, shame and grudges involving love affairs serve as the driving force in stories about female Oni. And Rita is writing about stories where women are so overcome by these emotions that they turn into Oni, which is interesting because we're talking about stories where women are so overcome by these emotions that they turn into Yure. All this to say there is a cultural precedent for folk tales where because of a big moment normally considered emotional that happens to a woman, her body is transformed into something other than human. The same theme is carried on into Satoko Shimazaki who writes Shades of Jealousy, Body of the Female Ghost. And she has a quote that is, in pre-modern Japan, representations of various instances of female transformation, including demons and snakes as well as ghosts, were framed by discourses surrounding the female body. This is the idea again of women being transmutable, fluid creatures. Yeah, totally. And it's also the idea that their emotions are somehow perceived as abject and grotesque and strange in a way that has, I guess, a physical effect on the body as well. Mm. Super fluid in their emotions, fluid in their body, that kind of thing. There's an interesting point of difference that came up as well between like male yurei and female yurei Mm. about how male yurei tended to also dominate the public sphere as in like if they'd suffered some sort of like public Mm. defeat or like, you know, had been defeated in war or in a war crime potentially, um, Mm. haunted dynasties, like how they worried about for the emperor. In contrast to that, most of the female yure or onryo Mm. tended to be a result of private resentment, such as like in in these stories, lover's betrayal or being killed by someone because you wouldn't sleep with Mm. them or, Mm. um, yeah. Yeah. There's some other really nice quotes by Shimazaki. Would anybody like to go over them? I like this one that jealousy was understood in early modern Japan as a specifically female emotion, as a female malady and latent in every woman's blood. Mm, which is which reflected is, by that earlier quote. Yeah, what we were saying about blood and hair and liquids. You know how it be. Yeah, then there's this association almost between all of these kind of signifiers of their body. There's this extending Mm -hmm. association into like the supernatural, into like potential for change, which means that women more often transform in Kaidan. I think this is very interesting in terms of Oiwa, because you mentioned in one of our discussions about how she is transformed before she dies. So is the precursor of her monstrousness the moment where she is murdered or is it the moment where she perceives herself as a monster in the mirror? Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. When we asked Hashimoto-sensei, like, these days, how do people feel about Oiwa? It's pity, mostly. No one thinks of her as a villain. But that might just be a contemporary thing. Very yeah. sympathetic. I don't think no. anyone blames Oiwa. She's not mean. Yeah. She's just vengeful. How grim. Mm. I think it's very interesting at the end here, like we've mentioned that jealousy was quite a demonized Mm. emotion, quite literally turning women into demons. But Shimizaki says that jealousy and anger are freeing emotions, which catapult female characters out of their everyday lives and thus enable them to overturn priorities and alter power structures. Subversion, baby. So another thing to consider is that 
whenever an emotion is criticized or you're told that it's a negative emotion and therefore you should avoid it you should consider who's telling you that mm. and why it's like we were saying in the Joan of Arc episode your anger is not an ugly thing your anger is good the only way Oiwa gets any power or revenge in her relationship after all this mistreatment is when she embraces her jealousy and her anger it's only then that she is free so we looked briefly at a paper called Edo Gothic, Deceitful Samurai and Wronged Women by Colette Balmain, who's like a Scottish scholar on Japan. And it's mostly about film, but it has some really interesting ideas about how from the Meiji era onward, there became like an interest in the Edo period that was kind of critical of attitudes in the Edo period, but also longing for tradition at the same time. There was something happening in the Meiji era called the Bunmei Kaika. The Bunmei Kaika is the westernization of Japan. It's the when they opened the borders and they started actively looking to modernize Japan and open it up to the West. Open the gate. When they opened the borders and they stopped having them be closed. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Bill Wirtz. But it was also a time when they could present tradition to the West. So they started taking images of tradition and, and historical records of tradition and like really polishing it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, I can, sorry, I can just imagine this. It's like, oh, quick, the redheads are here. Get out one of our paintings and make it look nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally. It's like what we talked about in the Barbie Yaka episode with how there was like a big boom in fantasy films in the Soviet era because they were like, look, our culture, very interesting no gulags here. Mm, well, Amazing. Yeah. I guess if Japan had to kind of solidify their culture and national identity against opposition rather than mm. existing on their own, they would want to make it stronger. So any elements they were like, well, this is problematic, so don't tell them about that. <laughs> yeah, totally. So it's a real source of pride. And it meant mm. that a lot of the kaiden we've discussed, especially Oiwa, Okiko, and Otsuyu, were really examined as they were presented for a wider storytelling audience, which meant that that's really when the class consciousness gets woven into the stories. So the female jealousy thing was maybe more... Right. Um, an archaic element of the Edo period, whereas that whole thing about like the samurai becoming obsolete and breaking with, I guess, class agreement was perhaps more of a narrative that came out of the Meiji era. So this genre comes about called Edo Gothic. Yeah. And do you mean it in an academic sense, as in the categorizing things that are Gothic and analyzing them, or do you mean? In like a cultural sense, they're enjoying creating stories. Cultural sense. I don't think people consciously do this. I guess a hallmark of the Gothic all around the world is simultaneously enjoying the grotesque of the past, but also being haunted by the grotesqueness of the past. Mm. It's like when we talk about Jack the Ripper. Yeah. It's like we talk about Jack the Ripper and we're like, that's gross, but we're like, tell me more. Here's yeah. a nice quote, Colette Balmain. It says, the Gothic form articulates anxieties around modernity, identity, and rationality. It examines the mechanics of transgression and also seeks to reinstate social boundaries. From Edo Gothic, we kind of naturally transition into the present day. So shall we like chit chat about cinema? Japanese cinema has a lot of interesting things to say about Yuri. For one thing, and this is finally the point as well where we're going to be telling 
things that people in the West who might never have been exposed yeah. to any other Yude stories would have seen Yude. Yeah, but for example, The Ring and The Grudge, which are very popular Japanese horror films that were translated into English by remaking them with white people, obviously. But they still have, even if they've sanitized perhaps more of the overt Japanese elements, they have the subtle visual iconography of the Euro backstory baked into them. We can track from direct adaptations of Kaidan in the 50s through to the ring. Like, there's a specific family tree that leads us there. Mm-hmm. Mm. As we've mentioned, kind of through the stories, these were all adapted quite early in cinema. Botandoro, for example, first Euro film, but even before that, Euro kind of showed up not as direct Euro story, but like, oh, there's a ghost in this film. It's a year. Um, Yotsuya Kaiden was adapted in 59. That's the Oiwa story. And that's a really, really famous film. It's by Nobuo Nakagawa and it was like huge. You can find it on YouTube. Botandoro, as you said, Bunny, has been adapted a couple of times. Because it's sexy. Yeah, sexy AF. Bancho Sariakshi's not had so much luck. Well, I mean, you could say that, but then we also have the ring. The thing is about Bancho. Sarayashiki. Sarayashiki. Is that I think that its elements are stronger than its story. Mm. I mean, the idea of like the well, the ghost saying things to you, the the counting, stuff like that, you see a lot. So I think it inspires a lot of things, but it doesn't have the strongest narrative because there's not a canonical version where she kills him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I also don't feel like it's it's nearly as like as filled in of of a narrative. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so as you said, Izzy, Bancho Sarayashiki has not been very successful as a full adaptation, but it is, however, strangely, perhaps the one that is now the most visually recognisable. Because what's her face from the ring? Yeah, yeah. Perhaps the thing that sticks out to me in this part of the notes is that Kaiden kind of had a resurgence after World War II, which, like, fully acknowledge this is a very (laughs) difficult thing to talk about. But what I will say is Hiroshima was a really devastating thing that happened in Japan, like mm-hmm. hugely devastating. And so it is going to embed itself within all manners of culture after something like that happens. And something that a couple of scholars have observed is that a lot of characters that are known for strong imagery of hurt and scarring appear in a lot of 1950s cinema, Oiwa. which might explain why Oiwa becomes really popular after World War II, because she becomes relatable to audiences in a new way now. She becomes a representative of a, a new pain that has been visited upon the country. Does, does that sound fair mm. to touch upon? Yeah, especially yeah. looking, if you look at her with the sympathy that these days I think is generally how she's seen. These yure, these, these women that have experienced a lot of pain, they sort of become body politic in a way. Um, but it is interesting how kind of one of the afterlives of these ladies is as national bodies. Mm. Well, by that time they're so old, you know, they're part of the national heritage. So it makes sense that yeah, totally. you relate to them in, in new ways. 
But it is when Botandoro becomes a porno that we kind of see the last of the direct Kaidan adaptations as popular film. So lots of directors take their cues from like Cronenberg and Dario Argento and they go like, hey, rather than adapting traditional stories, let's take the interesting stuff about traditional stories and make like mm. modern horror. Love the idea that they made a porno and then they were like, we've done it, boys. This is it. We've covered all possible angles on this. They're like, they've, we finally adapted it perfectly. <laughs> This is peak performance. Yeah. You said the idea of the disconnect between folklore of Japan, ghosts and monsters and and spirits, and how modernization and technology hit Japan like a runaway bullet train. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So these kind of fears about how modernity was changing culture tied really well with the idea of kind of ghosts being scary. So you create new ghost stories for new cultural narratives. Totally, totally. In the early 90s, there's this like urban legend from Japan called the Red Room Curse, which apparently like hit people in chat rooms. It was like a viral curse where it would come up as a pop up and it would say, do you like the Red Room? And then people would die in really horrible ways. And did you have to avoid this curse by saying like, it's a perfectly fine room, but I don't have time for this? (laughs) Say something kind of ambiguous. Ambiguous yet polite. Yeah. I heard about this on a podcast called Let's Get Haunted, I think it is. And they were saying it's probably came up in the 90s because the internet, you know, like had a huge burst then, but it's also really isolating. So it's that moving traditional curses into like technophobia, basically, that this is a time when modernity is is happening so quickly, like the bubble pops around then. That means that people, I guess, start projecting old fears onto new forms because that becomes the source of a lot of isolation. Um, which is certainly true of the ring because like it's technology in the ring. That's the source of the curse videos. Yeah. Mm. One interesting thing in the ring, actually, that I feel like, because we were speaking about the curses before and how you can avoid them at the end of the ring, the way that you can, avoid I'm not sure if this is in the first one or the second one, but you can avoid it by having someone else watch the tape. Mm. Yeah. That is in the first one. I have not seen The Ring. As I said, one of the first horror films I've ever seen was The Grudge, which these guys forced me to watch in preparation for this episode. I am what is uh, diagnosed as a scaredy cat, but I had to read the research paper about it. No, yeah, so it's passing it on. So in a way, we should be free of this terrible curse that plagues us for talking about Oiwa so much because we're making all of our darling listeners hear it and hopefully die. No, don't die. We need those ratings. <laughs> Interesting that perhaps in a really weird way, part mm. of part of both Kayako and Sadako is they want people to know about mm. them. Like really bad form, bad if so. Form but it's on like the part of these on Yeah, girl. it's easier for people to know about you if they're not dead. But then I guess they don't make films about you if you don't murder people. There's a lot of like direct influences. For example, Sadako has a, a droopy eye, like Oiwa. And she lives in a well, like Okiku. Mm-hmm. Things like that, which are not just kind of vague cultural assimilation, but like direct references that Japanese people would recognise. Mm. And they specifically take costume and makeup from Kabuki, which we mentioned earlier. Both of them, I think. Because that, by that time it's so ingrained in the visual ideology of the culture at large. I was just going to say, this: the 90s when these films came out was like the boom of the internet, but it was also a time when gender was changing again. Like, it's almost like every time there's a really big social change kaiden pop-up. Um, people are struggling to deal. Yeah. yeah, and you can explore things much easier when you're talking about supernaturality rather than reality. Mm. 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 
Another thing that's worth mentioning about Juon actually just came out a month ago, 2020. Yeah, uh, sponsored of this episode. <laughs> We're not being sponsored by Netflix, but we would love to be. Thanks, Netflix. Interspersed throughout, they have um, televisions playing reports of real-life disasters that have happened in Japan over the last 30 years or so. Um, things that they include in there, though, is how a couple of teenage boys kidnapped a girl and, like, yeah. abused her for, I think, at least a month. Junko Furuta, I think yes. is that one. That's awful. Oh, just, like... Ugh. And that actually happened as well in mm. Japan, like... um. And it's these kinds of things, like, you know, while you're having this spooky uh, actual story of the yurei being told in Juon, they have in the televisions in the background these real-life events as they happened playing. It's um, it's really interesting crossover. Is it the implication that somehow they are, like, and does that belittle them? I think it's mostly just for bad and spooky vibes in the television yeah. show. Yeah. But I think that it also kind of, it just sort of shows, like, how Yude can sort of cause disaster, how they're linked mm. with disaster. And I guess also maybe what we were saying way, way earlier about how these kind of cultural signifiers, even if you don't believe in them in the present day, they still have a, a place in contemporary society. Mm-hmm. Mm. Very much so. We're currently really up to, having talked about the films, what Yure mean consciously or subconsciously within modern life, like what their most current afterlife is. Mm. They're still mm. super present. Like, as you said, with Juon origins, even just by referencing real life events, and I don't think in a disrespectful way, but maybe that warrants further discussion by someone else, you are reminding people that these ideas still haunt us. Katsu Sensei gave me this book, so shout out to Katsu Sensei. Marilyn Ivey's Discourses of the Vanishing Modernity Phantasm Japan from 1995. Hauntology is like, I guess, the idea that we're not just haunted by literal ghosts, like things we remember or things that have influenced us haunt us too. Oh, like how Hosier's music is haunted by the fact that rhythm and blues was only invented as a result of slavery. Rebecca Hosier. I'd like to bring him up. Lucky will be so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Hosier one's a really great example. Modernity Phantasm Japan book talks about how, like, traditional history of Japan haunts present Japan, but also when we think of traditional Japan, we're not thinking of pure, untouched traditional Japan. We're thinking of a memory that's being altered upon each remembering, mm. which is mm-hmm. like what we're saying about how these Okiku, Oiwa, and Otsuyu get reused in different ways every time we readapt them. So... They become narratives of haunting in which restless memories of the past disturb the easy flow of the present, quote by um, Michael Dylan Foster in Haunting Modernity. All of this to say, these ghosts, we're never going to get rid of them because each time we remember them, we're touching with a, like a lost traditional history that you know people feel nostalgia for, but also we're finding new meaning in them. That makes a lot of sense. Like how now if you retell Oiwa and Akiku, it's not just the ladies who die. You're reflecting on the death of the institution of samurai, the institution of the aristocratic class system as existed in the Edo period, or like you tell the story of Otsuyu mm. and you're reflecting on the death of peeping Tomism being so widely accepted mm-hmm. in society. Mm. which is hilarious and these days their presence is within the j-horror genre but also like when we think about motherhood or we think about technology or changing gender roles they're there as well yeah Mm. it's really interesting super everywhere hey hey so you'd say these ghosts are haunting us (gasps) what (gasps) yeah i like that you know 
It's what we were saying about afterlives at the start, that you have literal... Like, even if you don't believe in ghosts, there are ghosts. We create ghosts? Yeah, we create ghosts. Yeah, memory is a ghost. I feel like that's what I'm trying to say. What exists after your life is the narrative that you create, not to get too Hamilton on us all. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story, hey? One of the earliest instances of a female yure, perhaps even an onryo, is... Oyuki being immortalized after death in her lover's art. And like that lady ghost, all these lady ghosts who maybe died before they achieved what they wanted to mm-hmm. continue to live on forever in the power of their tales. Mm. My advice for this week is to not die with regrets. I mean, you never know if you'll have the power to become a vengeful ghost and finish your to-do list. If you want to murder your <laughs> husband, do it while you're still alive. May as well. Another thing... Bonnie and I did. Unfortunately, Emma missed out, which is perhaps why her audio for part of this podcast mysteriously disappeared. I didn't know. (laughs) It was out of your hands. Bonnie and I, after our initial recording, made an offering to Okiku Oiwa. We sort of skipped Otsu because she's not so much a vengeful. Come back to haunt us, but if she did, it would just be with sex, and we didn't want to get that off the table. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So feel free to make a little offering um, after having heard their stories, especially if you're going to share it further. Get a little bit of food, put it in a little high place, put give a little thought to it. Like, you know, thank you, mm. uh, Okiku, Oiwa, Otsuyu. I respect you. Rituals are a lovely way of processing things you've learned. They are. So whether or not you believe in curses, I am still someone that recommends carrying out ritual practices. I mean, making your breakfast can be a ritual practice. Mm. Well... In the interest of avoiding, yeah, make yourself a little offering. In the interest of creating, um, murder your husband first before yeah. you die, maybe. Always murder your husband before you die. We've really embodied the dangerous women vibe here, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. That's babe. Hashimoto sensei is quaking. <laughs> <laughs> so if you would like to find us... So you can curse us, I guess, or you can blame us for murder. Or send us your ghost stories. Or send us a ghost story. Emma can read those. I'm spook. You can find us at Pod on Twitter or at Dangerous. L-E-S-F-E-M-M-E-S-D-A-N-G-E-R-E-U-S-E at gmail.com. Thank you to award-winning Matt Sklitsky for tunes. And thank you to Isabel Howard for being here with us. That's Daijobu. (laughs) 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 And thank you to Hashimoto Sensei, Katsu Sensei and Masaya Sensei for all of their advice. It was incredibly helpful. And thank you to Izzy. Mm -hmm. Thank you to Izzy. Oh, no, Izzy just disappeared. She's she's been a ghost the whole time. What a twist. Now you are cursed. No. Oh, oh, man. (laughs) Oh, well. And finally, get out of here, Craig. probably wait until Scruffy's done. Scruffy's having a drink from Izzy's tea. Well, you, you'll you be able to let's tell. Let's just clap all together. He's not done yet. No, he's not done yet. <laughs> I was going to say, this in the background of you talking. Yeah. <laughs> it literally sounds like someone's performing cunnilingus. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs>
I'm like, wait, with that in the background. Don't sexualize my dog. That in the background. I'm not. I'm just saying the sound, like the ASMR is very disturbing. That's what good pussy sounds like. (laughs) 